all engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. This week, as the UK's COVID inquiry kicks off, will it help to transform how we tackle future pandemics? That's what we're going to be asking. Also ahead, how an AI is writing its own computer code and speeding up the internet, plus using gene therapy for cat contraception. One of the most important public inquiries in British history is now getting underway in a bid to understand and determine what ministers got right and what they got wrong before, during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. Emma Norris is the Deputy Director at the Institute for Government, which is an independent think tank that had been calling for a COVID-19 inquiry. And I began by asking her to explain what the inquiry is attempting to achieve. So the COVID inquiry is a public inquiry, a kind of investigation that is looking at what happened during the pandemic in a whole range of ways. How prepared were we for the pandemic? How good was the decision making that governments took? How did the health and care service respond? And how did the pandemic affect different people, young people, for instance? Um, So the purpose of the inquiry is to look at some of those different questions and try and work out what happened why did it happen? And perhaps most importantly, how can we stop this happening again, or at least ensure that we're as prepared as we can be for any future pandemic or similar incident? Why do organisations, yourselves included, think we need this? Is, is the learning not sufficiently obvious already? The experience of the pandemic is is really unusual in that it has affected almost everybody in society, almost all institutions across government and the public sector and indeed lots of the private sector were involved in some way. And so really you need to create an institution, uh, an organisation, a body that's capable of looking right across what occurred and saying, how can we do better? Now it might be, and I would expect that the inquiry will find that there are some things that we did really well and, you know, it's worth capturing that but it's inevitable that they will find some things that didn't work so well and that government and and other people need to take into account and and learn from so we, we can do better next time. It's also, you know, it's really normal to undertake a public inquiry when there's been some form of of tragedy, scandal or, you know, just a very serious incident. Um, And I think, you know, something like the the, the pandemic clearly kind of meets that standard for when you need a proper independent um, institution that can look at what happened and learn. Are other countries doing something similar? Lots of other countries are doing something similar, although not in exactly the same way. All across kind of Europe, uh, for instance, there are inquiries taking place trying to learn from the experience of responding to the pandemic. We've gone for something called a statutory public inquiry. So it has legal powers. It's very wide ranging. It will last quite a long time. The public hearings won't finish until 2026. Um, Some other countries have gone for slightly different models. So for instance, Sweden went for something much faster, all focused on kind of speed, learning quickly. We're doing something much more wide ranging, but, but most countries want to do something that helps them just reflect on what happened during the pandemic. Isn't speed of the essence here? Are we potentially trading a big spend for more knowledge that might be out of date by the time this reports. I'm I'm a bit cynical about other reports and inquiries we've had historically about other sorts of major events. We're worried about the next pandemic. 
which could occur yeah. at any time. Is, is it not really important that we get this quick? I mean, you've just touched, Chris, on one of the kind of the key arguments and that sits at the heart of how you go about doing these kinds of investigations. Do you go for something really broad that tries to capture as much as you possibly can, but inevitably that means it's going to be a really long process? Or do you go for something really tight in the way that Sweden has only considers, you know, a kind of few core issues and reports quickly? I mean, I can see both sides of the argument. I would say that the COVID inquiries try to structure itself in a way that to some extent gives you the best of both worlds. So it's not just one big inquiry. It's broken itself up into different modules. The one that's starting, well, that's already started and the public hearings start for next week is all about how prepared we were, how ready were we for a pandemic. The next module um, that's starting later this year is looking at government, central government decision making. Then we've you know got future modules on the health sector and the care sector. Now, after each of those modules, they will publish an interim report with, in, with a set of recommendations. So we're not going to be waiting until 2026 or 2027 to kind of hear what the the COVID inquiry thinks about what should change. We'll actually probably find out quite early next year, I think, um, what their recommendations are on how we can be better prepared and probably at a later point next year on what the lessons are for central government decision making. So there'll be more kind of a drip feed of, of recommendations, if you like, over the next kind of four or five years. But, you know, you're right that one of the dangers is that, you know, by the time it reports, everything will have changed. You know, governments, the public sector, it's changing, it's learning all the time. And so something that the inquiry will need to do is stay on top of not just what was government like when the pandemic happened, but what is it like when the inquiry reports and how does it make sure its recommendations reflect the reality of government then rather than or just looking backwards? Who are they going to talk to? So, I mean, a really wide range of people, uh, the, the kind of people you'd expect to be called to either um, provide kind of written statements or, or give witness statements at hearings. Uh, so medical professionals, epidemiologists, but economists as well, uh, policymakers. You'd also expect to hear from from decision makers. So officials, kind of civil servants, for instance, but also politicians. And we know that for this first module, for which public hearings are starting next week, we're likely to hear from the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, and probably the former Chancellor, George Osborne, partly to understand how far they prepared for a possible pandemic. And I think, you know, the inquiry also wants to dig into um, how did some of their decisions, their policies during their time in government affect how prepared we were looking at things like austerity. Um, and so it's a really wide range of officials, politicians and, and experts that we would expect to see called up to the inquiry. So why are they after Boris Johnson's WhatsApp? <laughs> well, I think um, the COVID inquiry are interested in all forms of evidence on what government was thinking, what it was doing, what it was talking about when it was making decisions about uh, the pandemic. And they say that as part of that, they want access to private diaries, notebooks and WhatsApps of, of Boris Johnson. But I'm sure they're going to ask for similar material from other politicians and officials. Now, Cabinet Office, part of the kind of centre of government in the UK, are saying, no, you're going too far. That material's private and where it is, as they say, kind of irrelevant um, to the inquiry, they don't want them to have access to it. The inquiry is saying it's up to it's up to them to decide what's relevant, not up to government. So there's this kind of wrangle going on at the moment that's really about who gets to decide what is relevant um, to the COVID inquiry. That was the Institute for Government's Emma Norris. There's more on the COVID inquiry in their Inside Briefing podcast. It's been revealed that AlphaDev, an artificial intelligence developed by DeepMind, has been able to discover new and improved computer sorting algorithms that are widely used in common computer programming languages, 
including on the web. Essentially, it's writing new computer code from scratch that runs up to 70% faster than their human-made counterparts. I've been speaking to the man behind the breakthrough, and that's DeepMind's Daniel Mankiewicz. We live in this increasingly digital society, and with Moore's law coming to an end and, and chips starting to reach their fundamental physical limits, we need to find new and innovative ways of optimizing the computing stack because there is this increasing demand in energy usage. And this got us to think, well, can we go and optimize some of the fundamental algorithms that are called trillions of times every day by applications and companies all around the world? I suppose it's a bit like, historically, when we wanted to make a car go faster, we just slammed a bigger engine in it. And now we find ourselves constrained by the fact that fuel is getting expensive. That's like the electricity. So we're in a situation now where we're making the engines we have got better, and therefore they can be smaller and more efficient, but we get the same performance from them. You're saying, with software, we've been able to rely on the fact that processors just kept getting juicier and could do more, so we didn't have to worry about how well we wrote the software but now we do. Yeah, absolutely. Everything kind of needs to be streamlined if we want to really generate sort of the maximum performance. And you can think of the car as also analogous to the computing stack, where there are different parts of the computing stack that, that we can optimise. There are different parts of the car that we can streamline. In the old days, I call it the old days, but before you came along, what did we do to optimise software we'd written? Yeah, so a lot of the things uh, and, and advancements that have been done has been from humans looking at these programs and figuring out how to improve them. And then it sort of moved to the next stage of, you know, can we start to find ways to automate this way of discovering improved algorithms? And so approaches started to come out that would try to actually search the program itself and, and to try and figure out if I change this in the program or that in the program, what happens? What we have with our approach, AlphaDev, is the ability to go and search starting from scratch. So, so in other words, like imagine you're building an engine from scratch. We want to build an algorithm from scratch. We tell it we want the algorithm that you build to be correct and as fast as possible. And then AlphaDev goes and searches through the space automatically to build an algorithm that does that. When people talk about AI, they talk about training it with a data set, usually information that we've already generated, but it ends up being constrained by the fact that there are limits to what we know, and therefore there are certain limits to what it knows. So can you transcend those boundaries with what you've done then? Because you're just saying to this thing, this is what I want you to achieve, just go and explore. Yeah, there is that capability now with this type of technology. And, and this was something that has sort of been built on from previous technologies coming out of DeepMind. So there was the, the famous uh, system AlphaGo that beat the world champion at the game of Go. In this game, it did what's called the famous move number 37. All the experts looked at this move and said, no, th this is a mistake. Why is it doing that? This is not the right thing to do. And it turned out that that actually was the right thing to do. But not only that, it was so impactful that it started to influence the strategies in the game of Go and how people taught it and really transcended something that humans you know, had assumed wasn't possible. Similarly with AlphaDev, what we found is that when sort of saying to it, go and build an algorithm and figure out how to search the space so that you end up finding something that's faster than what exists, it also discovered these types of moves that 
when you look at the algorithm, you might not expect that you could do these types of moves to make the algorithm more efficient. To be clear then, this thing is essentially writing its own computer code. Correct, yeah. So you basically say the aim of the game is I want to do this lap of the circuit in the fastest time possible. That's your goal. And how you choose to run around the circuit, whether you take the hurdles or you cut right across the middle or something and cheat, that's up to you. But the aim is to get the shortest possible time and then just let it get on with it. Yeah, um, that's exactly it. And so we we devised a game and you define what it means to win the game. And in the case of building an algorithm, it's making the algorithm correct and fast. And in terms of the circuit, it's about, as you say, moving around. The, the game is to move around the lap and winning it is doing the lap in the shortest amount of time. When you look at what it produced compared to what we had produced, how much better was it? When we started testing it, we found that there were performance improvements all the way from 2% up to 70%, sorting items faster. Good grief, 70% some of them. That's incredible. Does this mean, well, I suppose the obvious question is, why stop here? Uh, Can you deploy this at other common computer problems that can be optimised and tweaked and potentially cut the carbon footprint of computing. Some say the internet has a carbon footprint equivalent to the airline industry. Does this mean we could make significant inroads all over the place with this? This is what we would hope. We actually did take it a step further. We identified an algorithm called hashing. If you imagine in a library, you have a librarian and you call a sorting function. Sorting could be used to, for example, sort the books from A to Z. Hashing is more about finding a book. The idea is that for each book, you give it a special unique number, which we would call a hash. And what that means is that when a librarian goes to find a particular book, they know that they're looking for a particular number corresponding to that book, which is the hash. And so instead of having to go and search through the entire library of books, they know exactly where to go. And so we applied Alpha Dev to uh, improving a hashing algorithm, and we managed to find an improved algorithm that was 30% faster. And it's now available to developers, companies, and end users around the world. An amazing step forward. Daniel Mankovitz there at DeepMind. That study just came out in the journal Nature. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, an exciting butterfly discovery from an unlikely source. But first, 80% of the world's 600 million domestic cats are strays and subject to poor living conditions, and they also pose a big threat to other wildlife. Female cats have traditionally been spayed in a bid to control the size of their population. But could an injected gene therapy shot, in which a virus is used to deliver a hormone that stops their ovaries from producing eggs, be a much more effective alternative? Well, I've been speaking to researchers David Pepper and, kicking off, Bill Swanson. We have a problem with overpopulation of both dogs and cats in the world. And for cats, we estimate that there's more than 600 million of them. And 80% of those animals are free-living animals. So they tend to have pretty short lives. And there's a huge animal welfare issue with those animals getting diseases and hit by automobiles. From a conservation perspective, they kill a lot of wild birds and wild prey 
they have major impacts on wildlife population. The primary way that we address that now is through surgical sterilization, and that requires the intervention of veterinarians. It requires surgical facilities, and it's very expensive and labor intensive. So the goal here was to come up with a method of sterilizing cats that did not require surgery. And your co-worker, David, has been part of this as well. What was the approach you've taken, David? So my laboratory has been interested in studying this female reproductive hormone called anti-mullerian hormone, or AMH. And one of the discoveries we've made, if you raise the levels of this hormone, you can produce contraception. And so we had uh, developed a number of tools, including uh, gene therapy approach that we had initially uh, studied in, in mice and rats. And we thought this may be a tool that could work to control the the cat population. And so we started working with Bill to, to try to apply these findings to the cat. How does the technique work? As in, what does this anti-malarian hormone do? Why does it work as a contraceptive? And why was the leap between rodents then into cats? Normally cats chase mice, but this is the other way around. <laughs> right. So uh, anti-malarian hormone is actually a natural hormone produced by the ovary. And its normal function is to regulate the development of follicles in the ovary. And by uh, raising the levels of this hormone, we can suppress the growth of follicles and the maturation of follicles. And if we raise it high enough, we can actually more or less stop follicle from developing in the rodents. And so now we try to apply this to, to cats. And to do so, we develop a gene therapy approach, which is basically using a virus to deliver the gene, encoding the AMH. And then the virus infects muscle cells, and those muscle cells that will then produce the protein, secrete it into the blood, and raise that level in the circulation uh, to the contraceptive threshold. And did you get high levels of this produced for a long time? Because obviously the goal of contraception is it's got to work for a long time, otherwise eventually you'll be back to square one. Right, and that's the beauty of gene therapy is that you can, in one injection, transduce cells and coax them into producing this hormone for a very long time. And in our case, we're still following these cats four years in and they're still expressing their hormone. So it sounds like it's working, Bill. Yeah, it is. The paper describes the results from our main study, which involved nine cats. And so we treated six of those cats with the gene therapy that delivered the AMH gene to produce that protein. And then we had three control cats in that study. And we found that they did produce very high AMH levels, and it did have some impact on fertility. In what way? What was the outcome? Well, the, the main outcome was that the cats were not ovulating. And obviously, if you don't ovulate, you can't have an egg to be fertilized. And then the cats are contraceptive for as long as that protein is elevated. And David, did this play out the way you had anticipated in the cats when you when you look at the expression from your gene therapy of the signal that you're putting in the AMH does this continue to be expressed the way you had hoped were there any side effects were the cats otherwise well so in in mice uh, we could reach very high levels and and that obviously could last the lifetime of a mouse but the lifetime of a mouse is very short it's about a year or two uh, obviously, in cats, we, we need to get production for much longer than this. But, you know, in, in the way it was given, which is intramuscularly and then following 
the, the concentration in the blood, it was very similar between the two species. In both cases, um, the injection was well tolerated. There was no adverse events. We saw no signs of toxicity. And so we, we were very encouraged by the safety uh, of the approach. And one always wonders when you've got people building gene therapy vectors with viruses, one about environmental safety. Is there any risk that the cats could then transmit this to other vulnerable cats or or cat species we want to preserve and conserve in the wild and render them infertile by accident? So is there any way that this could spread? So it is, is it environmentally safe? But also, does, does it have any other knock-on effects for the physiology of the cats? Are they otherwise okay? So that's a very important point. So the virus that we use is an adeno-associated virus, which is non-replicative, which means that following infection, no new particles are made. It doesn't make any new virus, so it can't spread from cat to cat or even to the wild to other species. Also, the genome that's delivered by this virus doesn't integrate. That means it never gets into the DNA of the cat. So there are some inherent safety mechanisms based on the virus that we use. And Bill, does this mean then that the next step is is to try this and do this on a broad scale, not just in domestic animals in a in a very constrained circumstance, but test this on real feral animals and see if you are able to achieve long-term suppression of fertility? Yeah, our primary funding source is the Michelson Found Animal Foundation, and they're meeting with the, the Food and Drug Administration this month to really talk about the path forward to get this approved as a veterinary product. That's going to require a lot more data. So we're going to have to do probably larger studies involving more cats to verify the safety and efficacy that we saw in our study. Bill Swanson and before him, David Pepin from Cincinnati Zoo and Harvard Medical School, respectively. They've just published that study in Nature Communications. Now, the BBC's security correspondent, Frank Gardner, is well known in the UK for covering topics of huge global significance. But we've invited him onto the programme now to tell us about his other passion, which is documenting wildlife. And I'm delighted to say he's with us now. And you've spotted something which is really quite remarkable recently. Tell us more. Yeah, this is pretty exciting, actually, um, that along with a number, a small number of other nature enthusiasts, specifically butterfly enthusiasts, um, we have seen the first wild living examples of a black-veined white butterfly flying around in Britain since it was thought to be extinct in Britain in 1925, or to be, use the exact word, extirpated. Um, they were first seen in Britain, in, or first registered in Britain in 1667 in the reign of King Charles II. They disappeared from the British Isles in 1925. They're quite common on the continent. But they disappeared from southeast England. That was their last stronghold. And then some friends of mine reported that they had seen them um, in southeast London about two weeks ago. And I thought this is pretty interesting. I was working all during the week on Ukraine. But as soon as I got a chance at the weekend, I went down, joined up with them. And they very generously gave their time to help me find them and photograph them. And I took those photographs. Um, and they kind of went viral, actually. It was extraordinary. I put one on Twitter, on my Twitter account, which is Frank R. Gardner, and it got 470,000 views, nearly half a million views. So obviously, there's a, and six and a half thousand likes. I know I sound like a teenager, but it just shows <laughs> the interest and popularity. Um, these things, it's a very beautiful insect. I mean, if you imagine the kind of your bog-standard, boring, common garden, garden white, butterfly that flutters around and, you know, is a frankly a bit of a nuisance nibbling away at things. It's like that, 
but perhaps nearly twice as large, with these very lovely, delicate black veins running through it. And they like hawthorn trees and blackthorn. And there is a chance that they could actually reestablish themselves. So amidst all the really grim climate-related environmental news about so many species disappearing in all parts of the animal kingdom, it's great to get, for once, a rare bit of good news here. Mm. Was it the loss of hedgerows, which is what happened wholesale in the time window that you referred to their disappearance? Was it that in the southeast of England that led to their disappearance? Was it loss of environment? And is it the fact that we have had some change of regulation, we have had incentivization of farmers to concentrate on what's around the edges of their fields and replant hedges and so on? Is it that that's bringing them back? Their habitat is hawthorn and blackthorn, and they need to have these undisturbed. And yes, those, those habitats have shrunk. Believe it or not, Winston Churchill tried to reintroduce them, along with the swallowtail. They were his favourite butterfly. Um, and he actually got some caterpillars and got them reintroduced to his garden at Chartwell in Kent. But his gardener saw these nests in the hawthorn trees and cut them, cut them down. So that didn't go well. Um, but I think the reason, I mean, it's a bit of a mystery why and how they have appeared. Butterfly Conservation, the charity which monitors butterfly numbers in the UK, was very quick to say, um, well, although it's lovely for people to see them, let's not get carried away. It's very unlikely that they're going to reestablish themselves here. Subsequently, it now looks as if rather than it being a casual um, and unofficial reintroduction by somebody you know, rather irresponsibly chucking caterpillars around the place, instead, um, local experts are telling me they think that it was from a female that came across on the continent last year. They're quite common on the continent, as I say, and laid her eggs, and these have hatched, and it's a brood, quite possibly, from last year, um, which makes me think they're in decent enough numbers we could even see them next summer, in which case they are re-establishing themselves. Frank Gardner, thank you very much. And time now for our question of the week. And James Titko has taken on this week's quandary, sent in by listener Akula. Can we compress gas into a solid? Now, this is an interesting question. What it's getting at is whether we can bypass the middle step matter usually takes when being converted from a gas to a solid. That middle step is, of course, the liquid phase. Now, usually, when the temperature of a gas is reduced to the point where its molecules or atoms come together, they form a liquid, and this is known as condensation. Similarly, when we reduce the temperature of a liquid to the point where its molecules and atoms come even closer together, they form a solid. This is freezing. Now, we do observe this bypassing of the middleman in the case of gaseous water vapour crystallising into ice or frost, and this process is called deposition. But your question, Akula, specifies whether we can physically compress a gas into a solid, not specifying temperature as the main factor. And for that, I've needed some help to get to the bottom of your question. Luckily, I've recruited science communicator and friend of the show, Dave Ansell, who's helped me with this answer. He says, the short answer is yes, you can compress gas into a solid but your material may not be the same when you reduce the pressure after compression. On a small scale, a solid is just a load of atoms or molecules sticking together. If you compress a gas very quickly, applying a lot of pressure, 
there will always be some atoms leaving into the gas and some sticking back on. The higher the temperature, the more atoms will leave every second, and the higher the pressure, the more will join. So when you increase the pressure, more atoms will join than leave and you will build a solid, though there will always be some atoms left behind in the gas phase. Another complicating factor is that if you compress a gas or most liquids, they will get hotter, which makes it harder to form a solid. But if you push hard enough, they will eventually solidify. So if you squash hard enough, pretty much anything will form a solid. But with a lot of materials, if you apply these kinds of temperatures and pressures to them, they may well be altered chemically. Thanks for sending that question in. I hope we've cleared it up for you. If you'd like us to try and answer your question, remember to send it in to chris at nakedscientists.com and remember to tune in next time when we'll be answering this question from listener Katie. Why is it that some mammals with small broods have the baby feeding apparatus near the upper limbs like humans and elephants and some near the lower limbs like cows and horses? Join us next time when we find the answer. James Titko there. And those details again, if you'd like to get in touch and send us in a question that you'd like us to put under our giant microscope, then it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists and we'll take a look. That is where we must leave it for this week. But next week, we're going to be looking at UFOs off the back of NASA's recent press conference and with the US military whistleblower telling us that governments are holding alien artefacts and even the pilots of alien spacecraft. We'll be finding out more about the history of UFOs as well as what science has to say about the possibilities and realities of interstellar travel and tractor beams. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.